Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I have a great conversation to share with you today. I wanted to bring on a therapist in private practice, someone who's dealing with people on a daily basis, dealing with trauma, to talk a little bit more about how you can deal with trauma, stress, talk a little bit about different types of therapy. For those that are in your, my personal mastery course and familiar with the empty chair process that I teach there, and if you've come to an event, you've probably done that with me as well. We're definitely doing it in the inner child workshop this weekend. We talk a little bit about gestalt therapy, which is where that approach originates from. So it will give you a little bit more information on that process as well. Let me tell you about who's joining me today. His name is Michael Gay, and he's a therapist in private practice, like I said, in Boulder. He has his MA in clinical mental health counseling with a focus in transpersonal psychology. He's worked in the field of counseling for the last 14 years as a guide therapist and trainer. He was a wilderness therapy guide for six years, leading and facilitating deep transformational work with teens, adults, and families in the mountains and high deserts. And as someone who spent a lot of time in nature myself, the past month, I can tell you, wow, nature in the wilderness is great therapy. He's also worked extensively in the field of addiction and recovery. He specializes in work with depression, groups, trauma, PTSD, grief, and families. In addition to his master's degree, Michael completed a three-year training at the Gestalt Institute of the Rockies and continues to train at the Gestalt Equine Institute. As a therapist and facilitator, Michael uses experiential and body-based methods. Many approaches to therapy and inner work stay at the intellectual and cognitive level, which rarely or slowly affect deep structural change. Engaging in more experiential and embodied work seems to bring the shifts people were unable to find in mainstream therapy. So if you've been stuck in the therapeutic process and you feel like you're not making progress, I think this episode will really help. You can learn more about Michael or reach out to him about working with him at michaelgaycounseling.com. And that is all on the show notes as well. Michael is a dear friend of my husband's. I hung out with him when we were in Colorado and he is the real deal. He's just someone who, when you're in his presence, you feel safe, you feel seen, you feel heard. He really knows his stuff. And I'm looking forward to sharing this in-depth conversation with you. Before we dive in, just a reminder that we are still taking applications for the $500 grants. I'm giving away $5,000 in personal development grants that you can use for anything that you want that's for your personal development, mental, emotional health. As I've been talking about in the last two Coaches Corners, one thing that has really touched my heart this year is just how many people really are suffering and struggling as a result of everything that's happening. And I know that there's so much fear and so much stress and I've asked you to step up and lead. And some of you are like, well, I don't know how I'm a mess right now. And we're all in different phases. Some of us are at the point where we really can lead, but even if you feel like you're a quote unquote mess or you're really struggling, you can lead yourself. You can lead yourself. And part of leading ourselves often is reaching out for help. And so this is my way of encouraging you reach out for help, apply for the grant. We're also giving scholarships to events that we have or partial scholarships. And I'm also really opening up for angels to step in. So if you are someone that wants to help someone out financially, wants to help, you know, pay for a counseling session for someone or say, you know, I have $500 that I'd love to give to someone to put towards their own growth, their own healing, or maybe for their child or their spouse or whatever. We've had hundreds and hundreds of applicants. So please email jill at christinehassler.com. Say you want to be an angel. 
We'll, she'll look through everybody we have. She'll match you with someone. We'll connect the two of you. So the money doesn't go through us. So you can really trust that it's going to, well, you could trust us too, but I just want to take any doubt out of it. You'll just connect with that person send the money directly to that person and we're reviewing applications. So we, we know that people are really coming from a legitimate, honest place. And then this is just one of the many ways we can help each other. And that's what I've been saying too. Let's get creative. If we're frustrated with what's going on or we don't really know, or we're uncertain or we're scared, one of the best things we can do is to be creative, be collaborative and get into action. So again, the website to apply for the grant is christinehassler.com slash grant. And if you want to be an angel, just email Jill at christinehassler.com. And now on to my conversation with Michael. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Christine. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Well, I really wanted to have you on this show because we are living in such a intense time on so many levels. We've got COVID, we've got economic shutdown, we've got division, we've got racial injustice, we've got knowledge about more knowledge about sex trafficking and pedophilia coming up. And that's just the collective stuff going on. Right. And then right. in people's personal lives, in my research, I've seen suicide rates have gone way up. Depression and anxiety has gone way up. Alcohol sales have gone way up. People's weights and obesity has gone up. So it seems like we're living in, in a really stressful, dare I say, unhealthy time collectively for the most part. And so I wanted to start because I know that you have, you know, extensive work in trauma and therapy and, yeah. and just the personal development in your own journey and with helping others. So I wanted to start just by getting your personal and professional perspective on collectively the, the therapeutic mental and emotional impact that this time is having on us. I, I mean, it, it may seem quite obvious, but the main thing to me is that we don't have the normal ways of staying regulated of coping, of moving energy, of charging, recharging, discharging, um, health promoting activities. Um, people are pretty isolated, pretty cut mm -hmm. off and not able to move in a number of the ways physically, emotionally, relationally, socially that they normally are able to. And so that's a real recipe, uh, for anxiety, for depression, um, for addiction, and um, for all kinds of shadowy stuff to come up. Mm. And what about just the fear? I said on a podcast recently, the COVID paranoia, not in a way to downplay the virus or what's happening, but I know whenever I'm paranoid about something, it makes me far less equipped to deal with it in a healthy way. And it also flares up my anxiety response, which isn't great for my immune system. So how do you think that if we just look at COVID and the, the, what we're calling a pandemic happening right now, how can that actually be traumatic for us? hundred uh, percent. There's a brain researcher named Joseph Chilton Pierce, and he referred to anxiety as the singularly most intolerable state to the brain. Mm. And so people that have trauma, complex trauma, um, developmental trauma, this is going to bring all that up because the brain likes predictability, it, it, even just some basic predictability. Um, even if things are very chaotic, if it has a few things that it knows are stable, um, it's able to cope. And most of those things are out the window right now. And so it's going to trigger people's sleeping dormant 
issues that, that they've been able to manage. It's a new threshold of unknown. And so it's a new baseline. And so we're seeing a lot of folks really struggling because there's so much unknown. And that's a really intense place to live. Mm. And so what do we do? <laughs> what do we do in that place? Sure. Especially when, sure. you know, people can't go to church, which is often a place that people find a lot of yeah. solace. They can't gather with friends. We, you know, just our normal way of life. I even think just, even though maybe it's been normalized that you walk around and everybody's wearing a mask, not being able to see other people's smiles, not being able to hug people like you normally right. do. Right. I think that is making this really, really so much harder to deal with the trauma that's coming up. So what can we do? I mean, the main thing that comes to mind for me is that usually it's a little bit unconscious the way that we regulate. Like you said, like the smiles, the human contact, touch, affection, novelty, like these things just happen and we're not often conscious of them. So what it means to me is we have to get really conscious and intentional about the ways that we are are trying to regulate what's going on with us. And and one of the real simple baseline things that I've been telling people lately is if you just think about it for a minute in simple sympathetic nervous system, parasympathetic nervous system terms, you've got to be doing things that get you into parasympathetic for a little bit of a time. And that's going to be different for each person. But that's one of the main things. If, if you just know what gets you in that zone, then you're going to be more resourced to go out into the world. So certainly there's things around meaning making and human connection and relationships and all kinds of things we can do. But, but from a little bit of a brain perspective, the simple cutting through thing that I would say is do something that gets you into parasympathetic and keeps you there for a little while. And that's going to go a really long way. Can you explain the difference between the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems? Yeah, sure. So sympathetic nervous system is commonly referred to as, as some sort of like a fight or flight. It's, it's not quite so clean cut. And parasympathetic is often referred to as rest and digest. And so because we are animals that have different layers to our brain, um, we have some really primal parts if there's a lot of unknown, if there's a lot of unpredictability, what we can do is overstimulate that sympathetic nervous system. So we're staying to some degree in fight or flight. We're staying in this hypervigilant zone in the nervous system, and it's going to be really draining. And oftentimes people try to rest, but they can't really get good quality rest because they're not able to turn off that sympathetic response that says you're unsafe. There's a lot of chaos around you. You need to stay really present and you need to worry. You need to, there are all these ways that we keep sympathetic activated. And so people are having trouble sleeping. People are having trouble with digestion. People are having trouble just staying regulated. So it's things that are going to shift you into that rest and digest mode. And some of them can be cognitive, but a lot of them are really bodily, non-cognitive, non-verbal things, exercise, meditation, yoga, human connection, touch, these kinds of things. And if you develop some mindfulness around it, you can tell when you've really shifted. And so that's the main thing I've been working with people on is what works for you. What's the doorway for you into parasympathetic? And because some people need to do a little bit of sympathetic activity, like running, moving, so that they can go and drop down. They need to discharge a little bit before they can really drop. 
But that's just the basic idea is that you're trying to get into this rest and digest mode. Like I'm safe, I'm okay, I'm here. And I, I can feel that on a really deep level. I don't just know that cognitively. Mm-hmm. And so I know for a lot of my listeners, we think a lot, <laughs> think and right. think and think right. and think and think. And it's hard not to think about a lot of the things that are going mm-hmm. on in the world. What are some of your tips for being able to shut? Cause I know for me, it's the thoughts that create anxiety, right? Like there are right. maybe sometimes a physiological trigger. Like uh-huh. if I hear, if Steph's out of town, I hear a loud sound in the middle of the night that may produce that more physiological fear. I mean, I'm sure there's probably even a thought that goes along with that, but more often than not, the fear and anxiety that I experience, and I'm sure so many of my listeners experience is from thinking thoughts about whatever their fear is. So when we're right. in that place where it, the, it's the thoughts producing the anxiety, what's the best way to interrupt that, that sort of is a bridge into that parasympathetic place. Right on. So the first thing we've got to do is if we, we, if you think of these two parts of us, sympathetic and parasympathetic as two, two different people that exist inside you or two different factions, you got to make a deal first. A lot of people are really used to thinking their way through things and really trust that thinking side of things. And so there's got to be a little bit of a deal made and there's got to be a little bit of confrontation. So first it looks like Hey, let's get real. This thinking thing actually doesn't get you back regulated, you know, like you think it does. It's often, you know, negative feedback loops. Mm. It's often um, self-perpetuating. And, and so let's be real about how that thinking stuff doesn't really get us out of this loop. It can sometimes, but often not as much as we think it does. It's success percentage isn't as good as it would like to think. So there's a little bit of confrontation there that says like, hey, you're not doing the best at getting us out of this. But often there's this impulse to cling on to it even more. And so I think there has to be first that deal made of like, okay, thoughts, you know, surrender a little bit of control here. We've got to mm. go to another another part of us. And as a little side tangent, I just want to mention, I think just in my world, I'm a therapist, uh, the world of mental health to me is a little bit of a misnomer. Like I really do believe it's clear that the mind follows the emotional body and sometimes the emotional body follows the mind. And what we've really tried to do in mental health is get the emotional body to follow the mind. And what's really underrepresented is getting the mind to follow the emotional body and the physical body. So we can really work on our emotional body and our physical body to relax the mind and to soften it. And so it's a little bit of a paradigm shift. Often those busy thoughts are really more of a side effect of the busy emotions. And so breathing is number one. Mm. Breathing is number one. Movement is probably number two. Mm. And so really coming in to working with breath, full inhales and long, slow exhales, focusing on that. We can get practical and systematic about it if you like, but that's the main thing is let's just have a paradigm shift here between letting the mind drive because it often doesn't know the way like it think it does. Yeah, no, it doesn't. And also just interrupting that pattern. I think that's a a, a huge one right now. I notice that with myself all the time. Like for me, observer awareness is really key. Like noticing that I can observe myself having anxiety producing thoughts, 
which is like, okay, well, if I can observe them, then I have some dominion here. Like I have some degree of control. They aren't me. They're an aspect of me that's, that's having these thoughts. So that was, that was super helpful. I want to talk a little bit about trauma and we've had, I've had another, a couple of other amazing experts on trauma and it's, I don't think we can ever talk enough about what trauma is and what it means because I think a lot of people think trauma is I had to be abused or my parents had Uh to go through a terrible divorce or, you know, it has to be quote unquote traumatic, but trauma can be very subtle. I've learned. I'd love to get your definition of what trauma is and how do we know if we've been through something traumatic? A baseline definition is a little bit nebulous, but it's something like it's stuck vitality. Mm. It's stuck vitality. And there are different ways that that vitality gets stuck. Either we stay like hypervigilant because we're always in that sympathetic or that red zone. There's emotion or some some experiential component that hasn't been able to be moved through. Mm. And so certainly there are singular traumatic events. Certainly there is complex trauma, but it's any experience that it's really hard for us to integrate and it's hard to move through. And for one reason or another, it gets stuck. I kind of think of it a little bit like a garden hose and there's a kink in the garden hose. Mm-hmm. And we, our job is to open it back up so there can be flow. Mm. So that's a baseline definition is, is mm. just some stuck vitality and its vitality is often bound up in thoughts that didn't get to be thunk and emotions that didn't get to be experienced and part of our authenticity and our truth that didn't get to come through and be seen and felt um, and expressed. Mm. Mm. I love that. I've never heard it defined like that, but that makes so much sense mm-hmm. because in that vitality is our peace, is our expression, is us living into our full potential, is our health. And I've seen right. so many times, including in my own life, that health, health problems, issues, whatever, can be traced back to traumatic events in terms of that, that the, there was a kink in the hose and right. that life force couldn't flow through. So how do we unkink the hose? Totally. So maybe let's talk about a couple of the common things that are hard to move through. Like one are experiences that are just really big. They're really big. So there's a lot of feeling and emotion and thought and worldview shift that goes along with that. And I think that one of the reasons that we don't unkink those hoses is that we don't have a lot of containers where the bigness of that energy is allowed to move through or has permission to move through. Mm. It's often just a friendship or you're sitting in a therapist's office. And I think that humans, life is really intense for everybody and more intense for some, certainly. But but there's just not a lot of places where we have the ability and freedom to move the bigness of the experiences we've been through. So that's one piece. Create a place, often in groups, where the big stuff can move through. Maybe that's grief. Maybe that's anger. Maybe that's rage. So it needs, needs a place to be held and welcomed, seen, expressed, and experienced. Mm. So one is the big stuff. And another, there's a lot of things like anger or sadness that get trapped because of our own views about anger and sadness. Like think about the culture around women's anger, for example. Like the feminine is not allowed to be angry. If you get that message, like if all of the anger goes into the shadow 
if you have your own interject, if you have your own thing inside you that says you're not allowed to be angry about this, you have to see the best in people. You have to be understanding and compassionate. And that that will stop your own truth and experience right there. And so working on those interjects, the ability and freedom to really experience that stuff. Uh, a lot of men, for example, don't want to experience grief and sadness. Feels disempowering, feels weakening. So there's interjects around that. So part of what can create trauma is our own interjects, our own mm. blocks and beliefs around what we're allowed to feel and not allowed to feel and how come. Is that making sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, could you, could you, I, I love where you're going. Could you keep <laughs> expanding on that? Sure. So, so often a big piece is you've got to discover what in you is keeping the stuff from flowing freely. And often that's like beliefs about the world, beliefs about yourself, like I'm wrong or bad if I let myself feel the anger and the rage. I'm weak or abandoning my position as like the strong one if I go into full-on grief and let myself crumble. So there's there's a bit of like a reclaiming, um, there's a backwards reasoning that's going on there. It's like I'm only allowed to feel this because my worldview says I can be this way and that way. And and really, there's a fundamental paradigm shift there. Like, it's if you feel it, like, that's the truth. Mm. Like, your job is to seek out what's authentically true for you and to not look away from it for anything. If the anger's there, let it ride, give it a home, get with people where it can be welcomed. And, and so the truth comes from our primary experience. Like, if what are the ways that you, we, all of us cut off um, our own authentic expression. Because mm -hmm. I don't want to be this way, I don't want to be that way, or I'm not allowed to. Maybe it's religion, maybe it's culture, maybe it's society, maybe it's my own self-concept. Um, so there's a, there's a different compass that comes. It's not like I fit into a mold. It's really trusting that whatever's true for me is worth following and worth expressing. Mm. Mm. I'd love to talk to Michael about how we kind of get stuck in talking about trauma which just Thank you. loops it versus actually yes. being able to unkink this hose and get this life force right. running through us again. I know so many of my listeners, they understand it. They can psychoanalyze it to death. Right. They could probably give themselves their own diagnosis at this point, <laughs> but it's still, they, they don't have that vitality. So what's the missing piece in actually processing trauma? So in the way that I work with it, often talking about it and awareness is a preliminary step and not always a necessary one. Often awareness is something that, that still helps to regulate the flow of energy. We can talk about it, but that's the piece is trauma is not something we talk about. It's something we've experienced. And as long as we're talking about something, we're not talking from experience and the energy is not flowing through our, us and our being. Mm. And one of the things that's really clear out there and that we're really missing, I think, is that the things that keep people stuck, if you look at the research done that Bessel van der Kolk's collected and a number of others, trauma is stored in parts of the brain and the body that can't be accessed by language. So that means we have to have nonverbal and noncognitive approaches to working with our trauma or else it's going to just stay stuck and untouched. Hmm. It's like trying to to fix a car in every way that we can from the outside without popping the hood, mm -hmm. you know? 
It's like we reach at it as much as we can from the underside, but like you've got to go inside and there's a point at which language stops working. Mm. And so this is the breath work. These are the somatic therapies. This is yoga. This is theater. This is altered states. This is all the kinds of things. This is a deep somatic group work. And so I think that's the missing piece. And I think it says something about us as a culture um, in our own disowning of the body, our overvaluing of the mind and the intellect. The really important things that we need to be working with can't be touched there. And so I'd love to see a revolution in the personal growth work, the self-help work uh, world and the psychology world, personal transformation world that really integrates the nonverbal and the non-cognitive. Mm. Uh, one thing I recommend a lot, Michael, on the show is somatic therapy. And I'm sure you do a much better job explaining what that actually is than I do. So can you explain what somatic therapy is and what a somatic therapy session can look like? Sure. Tons of different ways it can look, but here's the reason for me, the body, like Bessel van der Kolk's book says, the body does keep the score. And for all the ways that we use our mind and our intellect to deflect or to avoid or to protect, honestly, is what it is. It's a protection mm. and an insulation. It's a regulation of the energy. The body is sort of the way that takes you to the heart of the matter. Your mind really may not understand what is there or why it's there, but it's there. So it's really like the royal road. Your body is the royal road to your truth and your authenticity. And so what good somatic therapy is, is helping you experientially relearn that royal road to your own authenticity, to your own truth, to your own permission and freedom to express and to do that expression in contact and in relationship. One of the things that I think some people find difficult about somatic therapy is it asks us to not use words. <laughs> it asks us to use sounds to go and maybe describe a feeling. And it can feel very uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of people at first. Any suggestions on how we can, because we're so used to using our mind and our words, I think a lot for men as well. That's, that's really right. hard. And I don't like to do gender generalizations. However, uh -huh. sometimes there are some that are appropriate. 100%. And so why do you think it's so hard for us to get into our body? Number one, and what are some ways that we can, um, kind of bypass that? I want to think about it. I want to talk about it and actually get into the experiential feeling of it. So it's a little bit of a, a more of a contextual picture. I really do think that there are some major cultural pieces, at least for us in the West, about being in our bodies and being expressive. You know, we could often, we could trace the roots of it and try to figure out why, you know, maybe it has something to do with religious climate, um, some sort of like a uh, influence of certain types of Christianity. Um, but even if you look at other cultures, there's much more of a, a normalization of like a body expression. And so for me, a couple of bridges are like for me, I'm, I'm a body-based therapist, but I'm also a gestalt therapist. So what that means, there is a bridge where you can use words, but the words have to carry the energy and the authenticity. Mm -hmm. And if they don't carry the energy and the sensation, then you're, you're still not on it. So there's a little bit of a bridge there. It doesn't have to just go from verbal to nonverbal. 
it's that there's a way of restoring a person's ability to have the energy and the depth of feeling in their words. So it's both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there's a point at which the words really just do run out and it's pure feeling. Yeah. So I'm really interested in getting people in that zone where the words contain the energy. And then I do think that, and this is the way it, be, it becomes like a meaningful act of, it's like activism almost. It's like reclaiming the bodily, experiential, visceral part of life that probably got us in a lot of this mess in the first place. Yeah. And yeah. so if you can infuse your own work of going inside with that kind of meaning, I think it can help people stay there. Like you're really seeking like a full holistic version of yourself. The vitality is online. The life force is online. And I don't think we're aware of how much vitality we're missing because that part of life isn't integrated as much. Yeah. One of the things that I teach a lot, I call it the temper tantrum technique, but it's, it's nice. an emotional release where you set up a pillow and I like to use those foam noodles that, you know, people swim with and cut it in half. Right. It makes for a nice beater tube. And I give people, is the people that um, are in my mastery course, I give them kind of sentence starters to use in the temper tantrum technique. I'm mad because I'm angry because I feel ashamed because fuck you, because to try to get the uh -huh. words to match the emotion. Because I found for me, especially in getting over a lot of trauma I've experienced and just my own whatever in life that my own expectation hangover is my own upsets that having that physical movement of, of hitting something and having those stem sentences to get me going helps right. bring the word and the, the physical together. And then after a while, after I'm, I'm mad because I'm sad because whatever, I just get it out and get it out. You're right. It, the words go away and it just becomes sound and movement and emotion. And usually it's, it's yelling and then eventually it's sobbing and then it's whimpering and then the emotion kind of rides its way through. So right. would that right. be kind of an example of that bridge between totally an example. Yeah, yeah, using the words. And so many of my clients and people in my courses and even people that read Expectation Hangover <laughs> resist that technique a lot. And I get it because it's hard to sit in a room and yell by yourself, but I have found it to be such a, in terms of unkinking the hose, such a way to unkink the hose, which to me is much different than if you go to a retreat and they just have you scream without any attachment right. to, to words or emotion. It, it, it's okay. It's, it's, it can feel like a nice release. It feels good to let out a primal scream, but when it's not linked to one of those suppressed emotions in the body, it's more of a, just a release of built up pressure than it is actually getting to the kink. That's just been my experience with it. I'm wondering That's if you- That's a perfect you, way to say it. Yeah. Perfect yeah. way to say it. It's so, so much focus on just a, this idea of release, like, and what we're going for is integration. Mm. You know, it's like the, you getting used to and familiar with how much energy has not been online, how much like anger and sadness has been living in you and has not been part of your awareness or in your body. And, and just like really learning to live in a way where that's more a part of your visceral day-to-day -day awareness. Mm. So it's like an act and a practice of integration, not just discharge. I love that. That's huge. Will you break down gestalt therapy a little bit? Because I teach a process called the empty chair process. And sometimes I take people through it on the podcast that comes from gestalt therapy in a lot of ways. Um, but you're way more educated and trained on it than I am. So I'd love for you to enlighten us as to what that sure. type of, sure. of therapy and technique is. So maybe it's helpful. 
I just want to tell a little bit the story of how I arrived at it. I, I work doing something called wilderness therapy for about six years where we do really intensive work with teens and young adults um, in a wilderness setting. People really struggling with trauma, with depression, addiction, um, anxiety, all kinds of things. And I worked with a lot of different therapists and I was honestly not that impressed with a lot of therapists. And um, one day I just met a therapist at one of these programs that was working with adolescent boys and I, it was nothing short of magical to me. I kind of felt like it was some sort of wizard thing mm. that he was getting teenage boys to drop into core emotional content every single conversation. Wow. And I could not understand how he was doing it. And so, I, you know, I'm trying to think of it as technique. And he's just like, listen, man, it's something you just got to experience. Let's wake up one morning, sit around the fire. And before we get the kids up and within five minutes, I was sobbing out some stuff that I've never put to language. And I, I was sold. I was just like, who, who taught you this? And so he had studied for a couple of years at the Gestalt Institute of the Rockies uh, here in Golden, Colorado with Dewey Freeman and Joan Rieger and uh, Stephanie Joseph. And so I was sold then. I came out and I've been studying with them for about five years now. I went through their three-year Gestalt certification program and I've continued doing the Gestalt Equine Institute. Um, and so Gestalt is, is taught differently depending on where the institute is. And I'm really grateful that the institute I went to is also quite body-based. And that's really a credit to Dewey's background in bioenergetics and core energetics um, and really body-based approaches. But for the most part, it's uh, Gestalt is an approach to therapeutic work that's non-pathologizing is, is one tenet of it. Like it, it doesn't see pathology. There's some type of brilliant, sane component to what everybody is doing. And if you look for it and you make space for it, it'll show itself. So it's not, it's not an approach that diagnoses very much. It puts a lot of emphasis on experiencing and expressing. It puts a lot of emphasis on here and now that it's not, and that's one way to keep it um, in the zone of the alive, the energetic. There's a saying in Gestalt that the, the emergency of the moment will emerge. And so you really trust what comes up here and now, and that there's this sort of emergent quality to personal healing work. And another component of it is that the emphasis on, on relationship and on contact. You know, it's Dewey often says we're formed in relationship and we get wounded in relationship. And so we have to heal in relationship. And so it's exploring our experience of relationship while in one with a therapist. And so it's, there's a fundamental belief that contact this in Gestalt contact is this sort of magical million dollar word. It's this experience of, of attunement and connection between two beings. Um, or a person in the cosmos. Mm. And it's a place where we are really touching, viscerally experiencing another, um, you know, emotionally, spiritually, physically, cognitively. Um, and so it's using that phenomenon of contact. What are the ways that we stop contact or break contact? And what are the ways that, that pull us back in? Because it really views relationship as inherently healing. Um, and so those are some of the core principles. So empty chair is totally one of those um, mm -hmm. gestalt exercises. And the reason people use it instead of, and you know this, but for your listeners, instead of talking about, for example, your dad, you would talk to your dad as if you were in the room. 
and it brings up way more emotion. It really puts you into a different part of your brain and your nervous system. And, um, and then you can get to switch places. And so your relation in relationship with your own projections of your dad, and it just has the ability to go a lot deeper, a lot faster and really get to core content in a way that just talking about something allows someone to just stay separated and on the sidelines and, and not really a player in their own life. So could you break down how you'd move someone through, like somebody at home, if they wanted to sure. do the empty chair process, could you take someone through how they could do that on their own? You can maybe just make up a scenario. Um, or maybe sure. I could just even give you one, like maybe it's like, I never felt like dad was proud of me. Like always felt like, you know, I wasn't enough. Right on. So it's really simple here. And, and here's a basic tenet of this practice is you don't explain, you express, you don't explain, you express. So this is about your own raw experience and it's things that, that we would often withhold, um, because of fear of like drama or pushback. So you get to dig on your real raw authentic expression and it's a lot of statements. So I'd usually get someone to sit down in a seat and take a couple of breaths and just be aware of what it's like to approach going through a process like that with someone. Like what are the first things that come up and arise when you think about talking to dad? And then it's pretty simple. Make some statements here. And you, and you keep it as the clinician. You keep things really vague um, because you want the things that have the energy for the client to be the things that have the airtime. And so it's, it's a little bit directive. And so it's making statements for a while. And then you would switch and that's it. You just switch. Then you go get to be dad and then you respond. And inevitably what happens when you keep saying your piece and you switch back and forth, there's a moment where you don't really know what's next, either from your own position or from the other person's position that you're in that chair of. And that's like this really fertile moment mm-hmm. because that, 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 that's the point you're looking for. Like a lot of people, the first little bit, these are conversations you've had before, Um, but you get to this place of either digging a bit deeper into your own unexpressed truth and staying with what happens, or you get, you're, you're able to set a really hard boundary or you're able to really just grieve. Um, you're really able to go into anger and rage. And so it's like, what point do you normally stop yourself or what point is there an unconscious block? And you find that point through this back and forth and you stay with what's happening for you viscerally, um, and, and maybe that is, is a really emotional experience that you go into. And maybe it's some things that you haven't said. It's all the unsaid words. It's all the unfelt and unexpressed feeling. And people can totally do it at home. I have been amazed when I've done the empty chair process, either myself or I've facilitated when you move into the other chair and become that person. Um, or that aspect of you, cause we can do with aspects of ourselves too. Like I'll often put my warrior there or my, um, inner critic there. And I find that useful as well. Do you do that with clients as well? Put aspects sure. of them. Yeah, for sure. And I have been, or sometimes I'll put God there and right. I have been amazed at what's, what has come through. And a question that I want to ask you that I get a lot is, say we're using the example of putting dad in a chair. A lot of people ask Mm -hmm. me, so do I say what I think my dad would say, or do I say what I want my dad to say when I'm in that chair? 
And I think the answer is neither, but I'm curious what your answer is. <laughs> My uh, generally, the, the thing about Gestalt is that it's an experiment. You try it on and if it has energy for it, you go with it. The idea is for you to like disturb the homeostasis. Like if you've never, if you've never said what you want your dad to say, then just go there. Chances are you're going to have to say to yourself what your dad didn't say to you. And you're going to have to develop a part. Like if that I were in that situation, I'd switch it a bit and I'd be like, okay, instead of this being between you and your dad, put your seven-year-old self out there as a little girl or a young boy and, um, and you as an adult talk to them and tell them what they needed to hear um, and be with them in the way they needed someone to be with them. And so it might switch at that point. But um, I think I – so I'm not giving you a definitive answer. I'm just saying if it has energy with it, try it out. There's there's no um, hard boundaries around what you do and don't do. If it has aliveness to yeah. it, give it a shot. Yeah. And But you're basically in relationship with your projection. The only time I don't do the empty chair stuff is when it's um, – when I, at least I, I don't have people switch is when it's with a true abuser. You know, if someone, if it's someone they've received like really severe emotional, physical, sexual abuse from, I don't often have them switch. It's really about keeping them in their own seat and in an empowered place and being able to say what needs to be said and create the boundaries and do the grieving work and the boundary work. So you still will set up the chairs, but you will only, you won't have them switch. Right. And why is that? Um, there's something to me around not getting into uh, like it's not their job or role to get into the side of their abuser. They can, if they want to, like if someone's at a point at their own healing where they really want to try to work that out, they can. But generally first step is like really solid boundaries so that they can do their own healing work. And, and that means mobilizing the rage, mobilizing the anger, being in a safe place for the grief to come, the sadness to come, the confusion to come. Um, and that really means getting that force like out of their energy body yeah. and not stepping into it and not, not having that be a part of like where they're trying to go because a yeah. big part of the healing is like getting, getting out of that matrix. Yeah. So as we start to round this out, I want to, want to dive a little deeper. Sure. So undoubtedly we are living, as I said, in an intense time, but also such a time of division and honestly, such a time of, to put it bluntly, shitty behavior. Like uh-huh. I'm just seeing people say things and do things, especially on social media. That's like, what? <laughs> uh-huh. And that feels to me like a lot of, for lack of a better word, people's shadow stuff is coming up. Right. Their mm-hmm. unresolved issues are getting harder to ignore. One, are you noticing that? And two, if so, why do you think that during times of intensity and and stress like we're going through right now, trauma and unresolved stuff, those kinks, become more activated and we get more erratic and reactive? One piece about social media that really stands out to me is that it's it's missing some really core pieces of relationship. Mm. It's, it's not actually that relational of a platform. It's a place that's, that lends itself to projection. It lends itself to venting. In Gestalt, there, there is a very important principle um, based on the work of a, a theologian named Martin Buber, and it's I-thou. 
So there's this someone on the other side of me, and they're also having an experience of me. So it, it's like a rehumanizing. It, it's a it's a type of way of being in the world that's really a relational way. And social media allows us to act and behave in ways that are non-relational. And so I think that that's a big piece that I notice is that it becomes a bit of like a, a venting place or like a, a place of permission for people to say the unsaid things. But I don't think it really models what relationship looks like and feels like. And so it's a little bit of a seductive mm -hmm. um, medium because it can feel personal. There's faces, there's words, there's exchanges, but it's not community. It's not relationship. Um, it's not, I mean, we define relationship as the, the willingness and ability to influence and be influenced. And so many, many people are just like not open to being influenced. They're not actually trying to influence. They just want to vent. They're not trying to say things in a way that, that can be heard or experienced. So that's a piece that stands out to me is that we have this immense need for, um, honest expression and we're, that is that, but it's not honest expression in relationship. And that's the missing piece. I love it. Yeah. I think there's, there's so much missing. And I also think it gives us a false sense of courage and a false sense of using our voice. I think part of healing in any way is finding our authentic voice is speaking up, is sharing our truth, is having boundaries, is standing up for ourselves. But by writing a comment or disagreeing with someone on social media or something like that, it gives us a false sense of expression when it's actually not authentic expression, because like you said, it's one way and it's, it's this weird sort of two dimensional, um, way of communicating that's actually not inherent in our, our, our human way of communicating. So thank you for, for bringing that up. And also just kind of going back to the other part of the question of when there's collectively something going on like this pandemic, racial wars, the election, the division, that this just fear and judgment that's just rampant right now. Why does that activate our unresolved stuff? Gosh. Um, I know. I'm not asking you easy I, questions. I, I, sure. Um, here, I'm, I'm going to deflect, but I'll at least own that I'm deflecting. Like in, in, in Gestalt, we don't often ask the why question. Ah, I love that. Because the why question puts people in their head. Yeah. Um, we ask a lot more of like what and how and what's here and now. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that it's happening. And so what's it like to be there and what are the next steps? Like, what does it look like to move more towards like a relational way, mm -hmm. an integrated way of engaging? Um, and that, that to me is like a really individual inside job mm -hmm. of keeping your, your being your nervous system, your personhood integrated. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I'm not saying it always has to be regulated, but regulated, yeah. you know, and yeah. so that you can engage from a place where you actually have access to your whole self. Cause so much of the like dysregulated state, the sad part is that it means that we have these conversations from a part of us. That's, that's not our whole self. It's a, it's a reactive place and it's a protective place and it's often a well-intentioned place, but it's not our whole self. It's yeah. not our whole relational being. Yeah. And so what I'd love to see from people is, 
is having some intentionality around engaging in like a full self kind of authentic way yeah. so that all is online and not just the reactive parts of you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree with it. Why questions can be completely irrelevant and can put us back in that psychoanalyzing place in the mind, which doesn't lead to healing or integration. My, my personal, um, sense of it in terms of why people's shadow stuff is coming up is I feel like when we're in a place where we need more vitality, like a time like now, Um, it's sort of like when your lawn is dry in the summer and yellow, like mine is right now, I need less kinks in the hose because I need more water to come out. Like I can't have a few little drips and that's okay because Mm -hmm. more is needed. And I feel like in these times when more regulation is needed, more healthy tools are needed, more of that self-awareness and that ability to, to integrate and to put us into that parasympathetic nervous system is needed. And if you haven't really dealt with your kinks, they just sort of become stronger and more activated. So that's sort of my sense of why so many people are triggered and having a hard time navigating and why I've been saying since March, work on your shadow, work on your stuff, feel your feelings, you know, all those kinds of things, because it gets, it it gets intensified. And like you said, so many of the coping strategies for people, even going, being able to go to work every day and being around other human beings, I think is a coping strategy. And now as more and more people are, again, as you said, isolated, it's, it's like, it's harder to ignore the kinks, you know, when you're around all the other hoses who all have their kinks, it's like, it's easier not to look at yours. But when we're face to face with ourselves, it's, it's hard to deny the stuff that's there. So one of the positive things that I feel has come out of this, and I'm curious to see if you've noticed that your sessions with your clients have become even more powerful during this time, is that it seems like collectively there's even more of an opportunity to do some really deep work here. No question. No question. There's a, a mythologist and storyteller that is very, um, has been an, a great guide and teacher for me named Martin Shaw. And he talked early on in this that this is to take it into the mythic realm, this is a little bit of an initiation. It's like the first time that we've gone through something like this on a global scale where everyone is kind of going through something similar. And not all initiations go well. Like some of them really get derailed and they're incomplete or, but this is a real opportunity. And I have seen sessions go deeper. I have seen it magnify the internal world in, in ways I've never seen before. And so in that way, it is an opportunity. And I definitely abide by the adage that it's our job to turn adversity into the path because there's no shortage of adversity. And so, you know, high times for transforming this adversity to the path. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to talk about with you is men's work, because I know that's something that you're really involved in. And we have so many women and men that listen, more women than men are coming, (laughs) but definitely more women. And one of the questions that I hear a lot of is, so I'd love to ask you both, you know, how do I get my man into men's work or a man that I care about? And then for men, like what is men's work and why does it matter? Um, as to how to get your man into men's work, that that's the million dollar question right now. <laughs> um, most, most of the, you know, the Instagram accounts, social media accounts and, and people out there doing this work, the majority of people that are following them and working with them are women. And so there's a number of ways, like the, the main thing that I'm encouraging people to do is to, there's a great organizations out there, Connor Beaton with Man Talks and Sacred Sons and Jerry Boehm's group, you know, 
Stephanos, like all of these folks have great things going on in the online world. Check them out, even if it's just following them on, on social media. But the main thing that I really want is for men to get together and to go a bit deeper when they do. That to me is a big piece that's missing. And so I think that it's going to be different for each man. You can make the request. It's create the opening. It's making those statements. Like, I really think that our relationship could be a new level of vitality um, if you explored some of these things. Mm. And, and so it's to me, it's about creating the opening. And so many people frame it. You know, maybe it really is an ultimatum, but making it an invitation. Mm-hmm. You know, I really think this would put a new level of vitality online for you. Mm. I really care about you and I've watched your energy levels dip. Something's going on and I think it's worth a shot. Mm-hmm. I think with, you know, in all old myths, the trick is that you make a deal. So <laughs> in this situation, you make a deal, like just try it and see what it's like. Mm-hmm. Just give it a shot. Do an online course for eight weeks and mm-hmm. see what it does for you. Yeah. Read Traver's book, Man Uncivilized, and see what it does for you. Yeah. We can go through it together. Yeah. Things like that. And as far as what men's work is, to me, men's work is restoring men and the masculine to all of the, basically the sources of vitality that have been removed from us and, and realizing that a big part of that is a relational one. A big part of that is an emotional one. Um, a big part of that is a spiritual one. I think it's about seeing what happens when our relationships as men don't stay in the bounds that they're culturally kind of prescribed to do right now when they contain more substantive um, interactions and let that mean what it does to you. But, but we're, we've got to all acknowledge we're in a debacle. Like it's not really good how it is like the climate of men right now, especially the people that come into my world and Mm. people um, at these men's conferences, the isolation that people feel, the lack of depth that people feel um, is really taking its toll it makes people's partnerships carry the burden of all of their needs for social connection, for intimacy, for closeness, for depth. And that's just not sustainable. Um, it, it, it's just a shift in the paradigm of a way of being like restoring men's freedom and ability and permission to go to all of these realms that restore them, that they're kind of off limits right now. And, uh, I think it really just starts with getting together with other men and it honestly happens naturally. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's one thing that I think is really another thing that's up right now is that, you know, men have been, you know, well, we can say the quote unquote masculine paradigm is breaking down, but I think it's the shadow masculine paradigm. It's those shadow qualities that we all have. Women can have them too, of control and power and selfishness and more about me than you. And, um, you know, money and and thinking being more important than emotion and feeling and that individualistic versus collaborative way. And all those things are starting to, to crack down. So what responsibility do you think men have right now to shift the paradigm? A hundred percent responsibility. If we really look at the history of this planet, at least clearly for the last 2000 years, and we look at the narratives that have played out over and over again with colonialism, imperialism, genocide, and the depression of the feminine and women. And that's that's a problem with with men and the masculine. And so I would encourage people to at least hold that question. What's going on there? There's a lot of different 
ideas and ways of approaching what to do about that. But like we at least need to agree on the, the common denominator in all of that is men. And, and that, that means that there's something really awry at a deep level and it's bigger than just this current Western industrial society. It's been going on for a long time mm. and it lives in the minds, in the bodies, in the hearts and the souls of men. Mm. And there, there can be no, to me, there's no more important frontier of, of activism, of exploration, of returning to vitality and health than, than men's work. Mm. Hallelujah. <laughs> Michael, where can people connect with you? Are you do do therapy via zoom? Yeah. So I, I can meet with you. I'm in Colorado right now and depending on state laws, like I can, I can do some stuff if there's reciprocal agreements, but otherwise I offer myself as a consultant across state lines and, um, we can usually get to the depth that people need that way. I've got a website, michaelgaycounseling.com. You can check that out you can check out other podcasts and that I've done and men's work and mm. in my approach to therapy in general and, um, and email me there. Mm. Well, I so appreciate the work that you do. I appreciate the, the friend that you are to my husband. You know, he, you're one of the people that he calls a man's man. He's like, if we, <laughs> if we move to an Island, we're taking Michael. <laughs> Just a it. funny story. We were hiking everybody, Steph and I, um, in Colorado on our trip. And the first day we landed in Colorado, Steph went on an epic hike with, with Michael and another gentleman, Traver, who you mentioned in the show. And, um, you know, just, just loved it had, had his man fixed, had such a great time. And, um, so I got to know Michael a little bit that way. And then Steph and I were hiking and I was a little nervous. I've gotten better, especially after going to Montana, but I'm a city girl. I was raised in swimming pools. So <laughs> I don't, I don't do well with like bears and moose and all those kinds of things. Um, cause I'm just scared, you know, cause they tell you, you know, moose can kill you if it charges you and whatever. Right. So we're, we're walking and there is all this poop on this trail. And so I'm like, text Michael, ask him what he is and what it is. So I, I know. And Steph was like, oh yeah, Michael will, will know. And so we texted you and the result was it was cow poop. <laughs> that was the, the like unexciting result of that. But we just know we can count on you, Michael, for, 100%. you know, being able to help people with trauma or identify animal poop. So you, you have, bet. you have quite a range and I, I see that in you and I appreciate that in you and, and see the integration work that you've done. So the work that you're doing in the world Thank is so incredibly, much. incredibly important, helping people unkink those hoses and learn how to regulate and integrate and move that trauma through the body is life-changing work. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. <laughs>